0: Welcome to the latest edition of the MindGut Conversation. Today, I had the pleasure to talk to Dr. Alessio Fasano from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Dr. Fasano is the W. Ellen Walker Chair in Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. He's Division Chief of the Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition and Director of Center for Celiac Research and Treatment. He's also the director of the Mucosal Immunology and Biology Research Center at the Mass General. He is a leading international authority on the topic of gluten-related disorders and the author of a widely praised book about all aspects of gluten-related disorders called Gluten Freedom. The nation's leading expert offers the essential guide to a healthy gluten-free lifestyle. Welcome to the show, Dr. Vasano.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let me start out with a very general question. Um, When I went to medical school, celiac disease was a relatively rare disease in children, which presented with failure to thrive and complications of malabsorption. Today, the picture is quite different. Gluten has become a household name and millions of people try to limit their gluten intake or avoid gluten altogether. Um, how, How did this change happen?
1: Well, it was a, a dynamic process, so to speak, because, again, uh, when celiac uh, disease was described the first time, it was perceived a pediatric condition <clears throat> that destroyed the intestine. We didn't know why. Uh, at the beginning, we didn't know what was causing this. And um, eventually, uh, because of the intestine not working properly, uh, the outcome of the uh, uh, disease was going to be maldigestion of foodstuff that would go through, bottom line, and with that malabsorption, and therefore the classical picture of seeded disease was, you know, the kids with a big belly, no subcutaneous fat, in other words, mal- malnourished kids that we see now are from third world countries, but they are malnourished because they don't have food. These kids, they have all the foods in this world, but cannot make use of it. Over time, uh, the disease has been radically changing the way that presents itself, Um, first of all, with age. Now, uh, you know, you can develop the disease at any age, even if you're 85, that even if uh, the um, landmark is still the uh, destruction of the intestine, now we know to be an autoimmune process, symptoms that can go well beyond the GI tract, so it's what we call a systemic disease. There's no tissue organ that's spared. And has comorbidities with many autoimmune diseases. So meaning that, you know, it's it's pretty much in the same kind of uh, uh, you know, group or category of diseases uh, that has been changing over time. So it's not just premise of severe disease, but many other autoimmune diseases are changing <clears throat> the way that they present itself clinically. The reasons are not completely understood, but probably because, you know, not because of the genetic component that's been the same, but the environment that really leads to serious disease, beside gluten as the trigger that was discovered during World War II. Uh, other elements of the environment may change really the clinical outcome and therefore makes this a sort of clinical camellia. So do you think
0: this increase? I mean, there are these, um, you know, these, these, these classic um, images of a whole variety of uh, autoimmune diseases increasing over the last 60 years. Would, would you count celiac disease as part of the same underlying process that we just see this, um, you know, general increase in autoimmune diseases possibly related to a failure of, early training of the immune system to recognize or uh, the differentiate between self and non-self.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, you know, epidemiological studies from our group and many others seem to suggest that, you know, CD disease shows the same uh, epidemic, uh, you know, trends that other autoimmune diseases like uh, diabetes and multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis have been showing in the past four or five decades in industrialized countries. And again, you know, this is another sign that we're changing the environment too fast for us to adapt. Because you know, the timeline is not, you know, uh, compatible with mutation, genetic mutation to explain these epidemics. It's rather than, again, the environment, the second key component that leads to our immunity, has been changed so radically that, as you mentioned, <laughs> we're not capable to really give the immune system the capability to mature and understand, you know, when to unleash inflammation to defend us or when it's trivial or should not be done. Mm -hmm.
0: What percentage of people that have celiac disease based on positive blood tests or mucosal biopsy have symptoms? Or asking the other way around, I mean, how many are asymptomatic?
1: A fair amount. Um, We discovered this um, by this epidemiological study in first-degree relatives that, by definition, because of higher risk, uh, we routinely screen when a family member is diagnosed with cedar disease. We discovered that, you know, uh, almost 30, 40% of people with cedar disease, they don't have symptoms. And, you know, again, um, this is also based on some general population tests that have been done um, on, you know, non at risk, you know, individuals like school children that were screened routinely um, to find out, you know, what was the prevalence of CD disease in any given country. And we realized that the four amounts were asymptomatic. Now, this should not be a surprise because, again, if the destruction of the intestine is a long tube that, you know, average between 10 and 20 feet long is limited and that part that is, the, is inflamed it doesn't do anything specific, the rest of the intestinal tract can really compensate and you don't develop symptoms. But as the damage progresses to a critical point, you will be put over the edge and you will become clinically apparent. parent. There's, there's a particular
0: Patient that I saw, and I would like to get your opinion uh, on that. So, um, it's an individual, actually a physician, who never had any gastrointestinal symptoms. Ate a completely normal diet until he had a routine blood test done for celiac disease. He wasn't sure why that was done. And he was told by his physician to go on a strict gluten-free diet, which he did. When he was traveling in Europe, he wasn't able to stay on his strict diet for two days and became violently ill. He becomes so sensitized by this experience that he's now paranoid to travel anywhere out of fear that such an episode may recur. And actually, he has had recurrent episodes like that. So an individual that was completely asymptomatic, um, uh, celiac disease, or marked celiac disease, detected on a routine blood test, went on a gluten-free diet, And then um, his whole, he basically developed severe celiac disease, symptomatic celiac disease. How how do you think that's possible?
1: This is not surprising at all. Actually, I would say this is the routine and not the exception. And the reason why it's only partially clear to us, but the bottom line is that, you know, once you um, are diagnosed with celiac disease, that means that there are some immune cells have been primed to go after gluten as the culprit, and when they expose to gluten, they eventually um, induce inflammation, create inflammation. When you become naive of gluten, these cells will stay around, will keep memory of this encounter. And it's sort of principle like you know the vaccine, but they are programmed that if exposed again to the enemy, quote, unquote, that being primed against, in this case, gluten, they will go all in, and they will definitely not build up, you know, uh, gradually, that immune response, this is not released in some individuals, because there is, you know, interpersonal variability. And you may eventually develop symptoms because of this severe inflammation that's built up by these immune cells that keep memory of being primed against gluten. Uh, even people that they have symptoms, uh, for example, have been, you know, symptomatic, uh, and that's how they were diagnosed with celiac disease, and they go on a gluten-free diet. When cross-contaminated, they can develop symptoms that are completely different to the starting symptoms. So maybe that, you know, abdominal pain brought them to the diagnosis, but eventually, if exposed, they have, you know, joint pain, or, you know, uh, they, they, they have violent headaches, or, they have, you know, skin rash. So this is all possible way that, you know, the immune system reacts when re-exposed to gluten, which they were primed against. Very interesting.
0: Let's move on to another group of um, uh, gluten-related disorders. So these non-celiac gluten syndromes uh, let's start with the first one, wheat allergies. <coughs> How big a medical problem are wheat allergies? And have they also in- increased in-, in prevalence?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely there. It's, you know, wheat is among the top six seven allergens, uh, food allergens that, you know, we deal with. Um, and again, uh, like any other gluten-related disorders, even wheat allergy seems to be increased over time. Um, you know depending on the age the prevalence can change uh, between uh, you know six seven percent in kids to zero two zero three in adults but you know it's 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 not a trivial problem there um and again um i believe that you know this this increase like for cedar disease it's a mix of um, a true increase because again as i was telling you before the immune system has not been given the chance really to be trained to decide if and when unleash inflammation, but also because increased awareness. So people, they were not looking into with allergy in the past and now they're a little bit more attentive. And the combination of the two seems to be, you know, responsible for this, you know, increase in allergy as well. Uh,
0: So you would say that this increase in the variety of of allergies in the last, uh, decade even i mean i, I remember well, i can't remember in medical school ever having heard about peanut allergies or, or, or wheat allergies today it's it's in everybody's uh, mouth uh,
1: yeah i mean you know the peanut allergy i believe is the quintessential example of how we are responsible for these epidemics and and again um you know there's been a, a recent paper um, that was published that really changed the entire landscape of the way that we think about foodologists in general, using peanutology as an example. <clears throat> when we start to have pineology in the radar screen, and, and again, I, like you, I don't remember that this was such a big deal, but when we start to really you know, appreciate that this was an issue that can really affect, and, and in a severe way, Uh, with anaphylaxis so uh, and it was this you know major media uh, you know frenzy showing you know the depicting these cases that were you know uh, fatal cases because of some overlooking at you know food in cafeteria school and that kind of stuff. Uh, We were told the best way to manage this is really to delay as much as possible the introduction of peanuts in our diet. So again, we give it the time of the immune system to mature and know how to handle that. And the consequence of this has been, or at least, you know, th- this, this change in practice was paralleled by the paradox increase in prevalence of peanut allergies over time. Now, uh, this apparent, apparent dichotomy and this conundrum seems to be resolved by a study that was published, you know, last year in England, Junior Madison, they made a big deal in the news from a, a a group from Israel that you know pointed out said you know we don't see these epidemics and by the way the way that we handle you know um, winning the kids is to give right away products that contain peanuts so we're wondering if that's the reason why you guys see these epidemics and we do not because you know you know. Educating the immune system to deal with some food stuff, food allergens, maybe will require early exposure so that the immune system starts to really build tolerance rather than postponing that will create the syndicate for immune reaction rather than immune tolerance. And long story short, this paper it seems to suggest that's the case. So you see how we are the ones that cause the problem.
0: Yeah, and it, and it would almost fall into the same category of the extreme hygiene and frequent use of antibiotics that we do early on in life, because we're not thinking about the long-term consequences. How this affects the efficiency and and the accuracy of the uh, of the immune system later. So, I, I don't know if, in general, in Western countries or in the U.S. particularly, um, mothers have. I mean, now I would I, I would think it's actually quite common because everybody's afraid. that their their infant may develop this allergy to avoid it early on in life. And the same thing may be true about wheat. So as as you said, we do exactly the opposite.
1: Yeah, and again, I'm a little bit biased here, but I truly believe that the general, you know, common denominator of all these epidemics is that again, we're too clean for our own goods. I mean, again, uh, don't get me wrong, uh, you know, implementing hygiene and vaccines and and antibiotics, you know, changed completely and dramatically for the better. The landscape, uh, increasing our, you know, life expectancy, you know, doubling it pretty much in the last century. But I believe that we went too much in the extreme, because as usual, there is a middle ground that makes more sense. And, and going to the streams, you know, what we did, we really stopped the acceleration of this infectious disease. So we don't die fast of infectious diseases anymore. But we die slowly of chronic inflammatory diseases, they are the consequence of not allowing the immune system to learn, mm. you know, starting with, with germs and, and, you know, and then food allergens and so on and so forth about the surrounding and and and, and make that decision-making process, uh, should I? you know, fight or should I stay put. And if you are not exposed, later on everybody becomes an enemy, no matter if we talk about a germ or wheat or peanuts and the immune system has been built that way. You know, I keep saying that the first thousand days of life are crucial for that learning process. And, you know, um, if we don't play the cards well and we let the immune system understand if and when it's time to unleash information, during these first thousand days, you know, the, the the outcome of that is that, you know, the immune system is not, you know, trained the proper way that's supposed to be trained as evolution of two million years uh, will have taught. And now it finds itself in a totally different kind of, a, of landscape and, you know, just thoughts. So do you think, uh, I mean, it's always
0: hard to predict the future, but I mean, do you think, it, I mean, unless we really respond to this properly, to this challenge, they will see a continued increase and uh, increase not just in terms of severity, but also in number percentage of the population that will develop these these allergies.
1: I think that if we don't learn the lesson and make the adjustment that is necessary, uh, really to slow down and eventually stop these epidemics, Uh, I don't see, you know, how they will, slow down by themselves um you know again history taught us that that's the case and i believe that it will be un- un- unwise on our hand to not learn the lesson and change you know the uh, practice again i'm not advocating you know that we don't use antibiotics anymore or we stop using vaccine that would be absolutely inappropriate but to use them when it's necessary. So for example, the first three years of life the use antibiotics, it's very rare because the vast majority of infections in that age are viral infections that by definition would not have any return on investment using antibiotics. And of course, vaccines are absolutely necessary because we see what is the consequence that we pay. If we stop vaccinating our kids, that will be in even higher, you know, you know, travesty. But easy fix would be to allow the kids to go out and play in the backyard and put their hands in the dirt, as we've been doing for millions of years, rather than, you know, don't allow them to, you know, to, to, to eventually be exposed to you know, the variety of environmental stimuli that help the immune system to stay strong and defend us, rather than attack us.
0: Okay, well, let's move on to the third of these um, gluten, the non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Uh, So in comparison, celiac disease or wheat allergies, this seems to be a more controversial topic, but one that apparently affects millions of people in the US. Do you you believe this is a real disorder?
1: I I do, and and I have to say I was skeptical myself at the beginning because, you know, again, the, the, the way that this non celiac gluten sensitivity came into the picture, again, because it was already described in the 70s and then mid 70s, and then we completely abandoned it and forgot about it, is because with the increased popularity of, you know, an awareness about celiac disease and, and the increased popularity of gluten-free diet, we kept having people come into our clinic. They claim and blame that they were sick because of gluten. When gluten was excluded from their diet, they felt better. And we, at that time, were operating based on our rules. The rules were, if you don't have seedy disease, you don't have business to be on a gluten-free diet. So once we ruled out seedy disease in these people, we recommend to go back on a regular diet because you know they would not have any return on investment or any improvement in their symptoms adequate and placebo effects uh, in staying gluten-free. And, and again, because of the popularity of the gluten-free diet, and of course the mass media on one hand, the you know, internet on the other hand, uh, you know people, they kept coming uh, on big numbers in clinic until we had to really look into this more, you know, how to say uh, objectively. And I have to say that, you know, uh, we end up to, uh, find out that at least such a thing <clears throat> the mechanism is slightly different from serious disease. So in serious disease, there is a, an autoimmune process in which the adaptive immune system comes in and kicks the chain of events that leads to the autoimmune insult to the gut. Here there is no adaptive immune system involved, rather it's just the innate immune system. So in other words, the part of the immune system that we deploy early and immediately when under attack and um and and doesn't cause of course you know uh, other, uh i mean any kind of inflammation that destroyed the intestine but the symptoms are very similar and overlapping <clears throat> so the bottom line is that you know th- there is such a thing i don't think that it involves millions of people because again this is a mixed bag of individuals uh i can make the argument that you know if you go gluten free you really embrace a more healthy lifestyle because you can't eat junk food, you can't, you know, uh, use and abuse of, of, of stuff that you don't cook. You got to be careful, well, you know, if movement is in there, that means that you have to scrutinize everything. Best thing to handle that is to cook by yourself. So no, that was go back to old lifestyle and just that can improve your symptoms. Nevertheless, to eventually, you know, negate the existence such a a an entity will be negating the evidence that now I believe is building up pretty strongly in the scientific community and the clinical community. So why,
0: why do you think it's become such a big problem in the last uh, 10 years? So is that just a greater awareness that people now, um, they, they never thought about this
1: when they had non-specific symptoms? I think so. I think that the, most of it is due to and increase awareness, you know, keep in mind that that these people were labeled IBS, fibromyalgia, hypochondriac, uh, depressed, uh, you name it. And, you know, again, uh, they have that symptoms, you know, completely, if not completely, at least, you know, significantly improved by, um, if not completely resolved, but significantly improved by going gluten-free. And and, and again, you know, uh, because this gluten now is so popular, and, and therefore the awareness of, you know, what gluten can do to you, uh, of course, you know, uh, give the momentum of people that at that point they give up because they have no answer why they have symptoms to either seek advice from a healthcare professional or unfortunately, and that's <coughs> a frequent scenario, to take the matter in their own hands and give it a try on gluten-free diet. And, they seem to feel
0: better. <coughs> there, there, there are currently no um, agreed upon biomarkers to make a definitive diagnosis, and um, several control studies—not all of them, but several—have failed to clearly identify gluten as the offending agent. Um, it's obviously a big problem because of the overlap with IBS. Um, to, to, to really know. Does somebody have to exclude this non-celiac gluten sensitivity over the functional GI disorders? Would you would, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I, absolutely, I do. Um, and, and you know, just keep in mind, it's uh, true. Uh, the, the major conundrum, about uh, which we can't make sense of anything here, from uh, you know diagnosis to epidemiology, so count how many people are really affected, is the lack of biomarker or biomarkers. And you know, I want just to fr- refresh the memory of people that may not have this seen the. Uh, you know, history of serious disease. This, this black serious disease 30 or 40 years ago. We didn't have biomarkers. There were even people skeptical that the real existence of this entity. Um, they considered it to be more as tropical spruce, so an infection and not, you know, an issue related to gluten and so on and so forth. And it took 30 years to get biomarkers. And until we didn't got that Celiac disease was a mixed bag of stuff that, you know, that really were celiac and others that, you know, maybe celiac, but celiac was not. I believe that we are facing the same kind of scenario here. You know, because the symptoms sound vague and non-specific, you know, IBS is one of them, but the chronic fatigue, uh, the the headache, the joint pain, you know, all night yards and so on and so forth. If we want to go through the long list of causes that give those kind of sinus symptoms, who is there to spend the rest of the day and tomorrow going through this list. Uh, this is not like diabetes. You drink a lot, you pee a lot. It can be anything else about diabetes. This is goes lateral and, and vague. Um, so in that's that reason why you know it's such a challenge. Now, if you want my personal opinion, um, is gluten the culprit of this? I believe that it is is the only trigger that eventually can give you non-silic gluten sensitivity. I'm not convinced that it's the case. Probably there is something else in there. There are other proteins like this ATI, so amylase triptase inhibitors, that seems to be involved in this autoimmune process. Who knows what else is in there? The ones that really create a lot of confusion, in my humble opinion, is the FODMAP. So this fermentable oligosaccharides that, you know, some people claim to be responsible for non gluten sensitivity, and why for the IBS component this can be definitely the case because, you know, this sugar creates symptoms because they are, they are fermentable and when it in, ingests in, in large amount, they got in the colon and the fermentation of the sugar will produce gas and with that gas distinction, irregular bowel movements, you know, cramps, all the symptoms that characterize IBS. Um, that will not explain the extra-intestinal symptoms that these people experience. Uh, they are purely on an immune basis. So that's an immune reaction that gives inflammation. So, um, you know, uh, that makes a huge difference between what we call a food intolerance, like food not intolerance, in which that's what we're talking about, and a food sensitivity, like in this case, in which there is an immune component that is creating inflammation that leads to symptoms. So um, this is a long way to answer, I don't think that gluten is the only culprit of the symptoms to these people, but I don't think that FODMAP is the driving force.
0: Okay. Um, quick answer to this question, I mean, along the lines of, 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 of your previous answer, do you think there's any evidence to support benefit of a gluten-free diet in, in certain psychiatric disorders, such as autism spectrum disorders,
1: anxiety, or even
0: schizophrenia?
1: <clears throat> I do, and, and the reason why I believe that is the case because you know we have published, you know, now extensively the evidence that there is such a thing. But even forget about our data. If you look into the literature, and probably one of the most controversial, you know, uh, debates in the autism, uh, you know, uh, field, for example, is useless, uh, um, the 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 the. The return on investment on embracing a gluten-free kids and free diet, and here you find a very, how to say, animated dichotomic discussion between the, uh, the believers and not believers The believers that they think that everybody should go gluten-free among kids uh, without this because they will benefit from that, and not believers that you know they think that this is not going to make any difference. To the point in which the NIH stepped there. And, 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 you know, the FDA as well. I said, let's do this right. Let's do this in a double-blind fashion. Let's do a Cochrane analysis and so on and so forth. And the outcome of that was, <laughs> as expected, I believe, that was inconclusive because some studies confirmed some benefits, and some studies negated the benefits. The, the reality of the story, and I believe that's, again, my very personal opinion, is there is a, a tremendous confusion or the level of expectation of the gluten-free diet as the panacea to resolve anything. We do know that is the culprit for celiac disease and therefore we expect that 100% of people with celiac disease going on a gluten-free diet will benefit. But when we talk about other conditions in which gluten can be the culprit, I would be extremely skeptical to believe that 100% of people with schizophrenia or autism or ADHD will benefit the gluten-free diet. These are complex conditions. The final destination can be the same, but you can reach that final destination in a very different way. i give you an example again on autism. We know, and this is not controversial, it's well accepted that fragile X can lead, among other stuff, to a clinical outcome that is out of uh, spectrum disorder. In somebody with a fragile X, you put that person on a gluten-free diet, there is no way that that person's behavior will improve because there is a genetic reason why they have the kind of symptoms. All this to say, and this is the future of medicine in my humble opinion, that we really need to do a 360 degrees turnaround in terms of how we approach medicine. You know, three, four thousand years ago, when this became an, a science more than an art, the, the, the doctors at that time, I'm talking about the, the Chinese school, I'm talking about the Arabic school, the, 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 the Jewish school, the, the, the Greek school, the Roman schools, they were healers. Why? They were focused on individual. And then, you know, over time, we, we moved from that to the evidence-based medicine that was focused on disease. And again, there was a necessary passage because we learned so much about, you know, conditions that can make us sick. But now we realize that, you know, again, these are our final destinations that can be reached by each of us in a different way. So bringing now the concept of personalized medicine. So yes, you are affected by autism, but the treatment and the management needs to be managed on you because your path to get there can be different than mine. That I got to the same final destination that you went, but through a different path. So going back to the gluten-free diet, evidence suggests that roughly 20-25% of kids without this may have, you know, reached this final destination through exposure to gluten, and therefore only those 20-25% would benefit the gluten-free diet. The study that negate the studies that negate the the, the usefulness of the gluten-free diet, they took the old comers. And if you look at the random chance, assuming that you you have efficacy, normally 20% that looks like, and you take hundred kids, 20% efficacy means it doesn't work. But if you have biomarkers that we unfortunately don't have, that will say that individual reached the final destination to gluten and put that people only on a gluten-free diet. So those 20 out of 100, now you have 100% efficacy. And the same applies to schizophrenia. So once again, it's a long way to say, I do believe there are some groups of individuals that they have neuroinflammatory conditions, they are triggered by gluten. But you know, making from that statement, the conclusion that everybody will get better going on a gluten-free diet, it's something that's not defendable in my humble opinion. Well, thanks. I mean, this
0: was a really, um, you know, really thoughtful answer, and, and I think it's probably a good way to uh, to conclude this um, this conversation. I, I think uh, people are interested in this topic. will get a lot out of this from somebody who who really has studied this and has an objective opinion on it. There's obviously a lot of voices out there that have, like, in many areas now, that are sometimes called, you know, fake science or um people making money on, on on recommendations that are not really evidence-based but but i think hearing this from an expert like you is that's a whole different story and i'm so I'm glad we had this conversation thank you very much
1: i appreciate that and that's the reason why we decided to write google freedom to set the the record straight because as you said without you know names or pointing fingers there are you know publications out there making these claims they're very confusing not evidence-based, they, you know, raise expectations that will be difficult to really fulfill. So um, with that book, what we decided to do is, you know, just going to people that leave the story from the beginning to nowadays uh, to be objective and, you know, and to say, this is what a a reasonable expectation and this is a wishful thinking that probably is not going to materialize.
0: Yeah, I would highly recommend anybody interested in this topic to, um, to, to read your book, um, and um, I, I think a lot of people will get very valuable advice from that. Appreciate um, it. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Fasano. I um, really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you, so did I. Thank you for having me on your show.